Welcome back to the In Squash Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson. The episodes seem to be coming uh, fast and furious at the moment. Uh, I guess it's that time of year, but this is our Growing the Game panel. It's been a while in the making, and I'm super happy with uh, what's come of it. The panel uh, was in the form of a podcast, obviously, uh, so there was no live audience participation. I didn't uh, really go into... I'm not that savvy when it comes to, uh, to Zoom. I'm sure I could have uh, managed it, but it was just me moderating, so I kept it simple. Uh, we have Zena Wildridge, President of the World Squash Federation, Cleve Miller, Executive Director of Open Squash, Rob Eberhardt uh, of Active Scout, and he's a squash entrepreneur who is soon to be releasing a book on growing the game eduardo alvarez he's been in the uh, he's been on the pod before and one of the more popular episodes actually on growing the game uh, about two years back i believe he's a toronto based club owner lifelong player i played against him in junior squash way back in the day and uh, he has a huge passion passion for investigating squash's downturn. Uh, I really highly recommend you check out his pieces on squash. Uh, Matt, he's got some great articles up there with, which go into uh, very, uh, very good detail on what's going on in terms of the squash's downturn, memberships, club closures, etc. And finally, last but not least, uh, Peter Marshall, former world number two and representing independent squash minds. That's Rob Owens. Uh, initiative and he comes on and adds uh, definitely a lot of insight in terms of what the ism is doing and also based on his experience uh, over the years now just to give you an idea behind the panel it was to give each panelist the opportunity to uh, to discuss how they've been invested in growing the game their various initiatives and thoughts they have on what could be or what could be done, what can be done uh, to get squash back on track again. The discussion was vibrant and very congenial. Um, the intention, uh, my intention, anyways, wasn't to point fingers and admonish anyone for what they could be doing. Any of the individuals on on the podcast or anyone out there in the you know, out there in the squash community. Uh, no pointing fingers. It was an attempt to flesh out and discuss uh, various initiatives and thoughts uh, of the respective panelists. Uh, in the end, it was a tremendous uh, discussion, uh, which I, you know, unfortunately or, or fortunately, it depends on how you look at it. It, it basically just scratched the surface, but presented some food for thought for sure. Uh, identified areas where we as a community uh, need to step our games up. And uh, really, I know you're going to enjoy this. I certainly did. Uh, I can't wait to listen to it myself uh, when I have time. But uh, before we get into it, though, just a word from our sponsor, uh, Executive Director uh, Cleve Miller is on the pod today, and that's Open Squad. Uh, now from uh, from this New York-based nonprofit, they're dedicated to bringing thousands of new people into the sport by making it more accessible and more affordable for everyone. They've brought on board several like-minded PSA pros like former world number one Ali Farag. We want to wish him all the best. Hopefully he's healthy again. Victor Quack, Canadian Open runner-up. He had a great final match there against Joel. Make him watch that today. Fantastic stuff. Gina Kennedy, uh, she's making inroads again. A bit of a, a foot blister uh, issue there in the final in Cincinnati. Uh, we'll be talking to her coach, uh, Ben Ford, in the coming days. For anyone in and around New York City, though, and you're interested in looking at their membership plans or if you'd uh, like to check out their pre-sales plan for their Pearl Street and Brooklyn Centers, check out details on their website at OpenSquash.com. 
org. Their second New York City Center, Open Squash Phi Dai, is now open for membership registration. Uh, their, uh, their irresistible offers will get you bouncing through the door to check out this brand new state-of-the-art facility with eight new courts, including a glass court for daily use of squash-centric gym and a full range of classes and clinics. You have to come, uh, you have come to enjoy it. The Bryant Park Open Squash Phi Dai promises to be their next sold-out squash center. Here's the deal. Sign up today, confirm your membership with your first monthly payment, and the first 100 players to sign up get two months free. Or uh, you get one month free if you sign up for FIDI before they open. So that's it for Open Squash. Check out their website at opensquash.org. And now let's enjoy the panel discussion on growing the game with Rob Eberhardt, Zena Wildrich. Peter Marshall, Cleve Miller, and Eduardo Alvarez with yours truly serving as your humble moderator. Episode 255. All right, uh, everyone, welcome uh, to this Growing the Game uh, podcast panel on the In Squash uh, podcast. There's no question uh, that Squash is going through a bit of a difficult time in terms of growth as we in the Squash community have been faced with the, the challenge of reversing uh, the game's decline over the, the last 10, 15 years or so. Uh, court closures in what uh, used to be major squash centers seem to be happening globally. And that uh, and also a drop in the, the number of participants playing the game. Um, discussions around uh, surrounding these uh, circumstances have always begged the question, what can we do to spark a revival? Uh, bring the game back to what it uh, what it was like when I uh, first picked up a racket back in the mid uh, early eighties. Uh, back then, when it was hugely popular, Peter uh, Marshall. Uh, that's when he was at the top of his game, I believe, or, or about to approach that. Um, uh, that's why we're here today to discuss uh, these issues uh, in terms of growing the game. Uh, the group of panelists we've assembled here are all, uh, in their own way, passionate, uh, very passionate about growing the game. And the panel consists of Ed Alvarez of uh, the Unionville Athletic Club in Toronto, Zena Wildridge, uh, president of the World Squash Federation, Peter Marshall, part of the Independent Squash Minds team and former world number two, Rob Eberhardt, CEO at Active Scout and soon to be author of a book on growing the game. Correct me if I'm wrong there, Rob. But, uh, and uh, Cleve Miller, executive director at Open Squash. And uh, let's begin by having each one of you uh, give a brief uh, intro. Let's start with uh, with you, Ed. Mic off? Yeah. Um, thanks, uh, Jerry. Uh, so I'm uh, based in Canada. I grew up in uh, the Midwest, but I'm, I'm now in Toronto. Uh, I was a journeyman, open-level A player. I was no Peter Marshall. So, you know, I played a little bit of, you know, sort there of open-level no squash. And, <laughs> in uh, in Canada, and I fell into the club ownership uh, business. I have owned clubs for the last thirty years. I consult in that space uh, quite a bit, um, and um, do a lot of business with major chains, um, and have a, a pulse on the commercial sector of the health club industry, um, m- largely in North America. Okay, uh, so that's my background. Thanks, Ed. Uh, Zena? Okay, Zena, you're on mute. There we yeah. go. Yeah. 
Um, yes, Ina Waldridge, um, I've been president of World Squash for two years now, half of that within the pandemic and, and the lockdowns. Um, my background career-wise is um, I've spent uh, probably over 30 years in a combination of commercial and not-for-profit um, sport, from recreational to world-class um, but also that including um, including squash amongst 55 sports. So I have a broad sports spectrum um, in terms of the view across. Um, so, yeah, and, and was previously um, chair of England squash for six years and president of European squash for six years. So I have that combination of multi-sport and, um, and, and squash specific. Brilliant. Okay, thank you, Zena. Uh, Cleve. Uh, thanks, Jerry. Yeah, I'm Cleve Miller. I'm executive director of Open Squash. Um, Open Squash is a nonprofit squash startup based out of New York City. Um, our mission is to grow the sport and make squash more accessible and make it more affordable to everybody. We um, opened up our first club in 2020, perfect timing, just a couple months before everything went sideways. Um, but fortunately, we, 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 we've done well uh, with our first center. We're completely full now with 500 members and about a six-week wait list. Um, so we're opening up as soon as we can a second center downtown in New York City. Uh, and we have a third uh, a third squash center um, set to open in 2024 in Brooklyn as well. And our plan is to open about 100 more. So um, it's uh, we, we, we are ambitious about the whole thing. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Cleve. Uh, Peter. Hi everyone, um, my name is Peter Marshall. I'm based in London, um, in England. Um, I started playing squash at the age of seven. Um, so I played all the junior tournaments Then I became a professional player. Um, that was predominantly through um, the nineties um, and my highest world ranking was, was world number two. Um, since I've retired, I've, um, worked in, in a number of different industries. At the moment, I'm a director of a healthcare consultancy um, in London, and I'm also a member of the Independent Squash Mines, and I'm a trustee for the England Squash Foundation, which um, supports um, children from disadvantaged, disadvantaged backgrounds, um, kind of getting the opportunity to play squash and support with their education. Thank you very much, Peter. And uh, Rob? Hey, thanks, Jerry. Uh, my name's Rob Eberhard. I'm a serial entrepreneur with an MBA. I'm the founding president of the Whistler Squash Club, a squash instructor, and an award-winning digital user interface designer. I've dedicated about a decade of my life now to the question of how can we save the sport of squash? I'm also writing a book on growing the sport. So Jerry, if you could post uh, my contact information in the show notes, I, I wanna hear from anyone with a history of growing the sport. Will do, will do. Thanks Rob, looking forward to uh, what you have coming there. Um, now let's get, let's get started here. Uh, Ed, uh, you've done a tremendous amount of research on squash's playing numbers. Uh, can you tell us some of the details behind uh, the research, like how you uncovered the numbers, your findings, and uh, do they speak to a global decline in your estimation? Um, sure. So I'll try to be as quick as, as possible. The backstory was um, when COVID hit, 
Um, prior to COVID, I was noticing in, in our market in Toronto, in the Northeast, a lot of club closures. So a lot of squash courts were closing, courts would be taken out, a surprising amount of them. So it was alarming to me. So when COVID hit, everything shut down. So I was bored and I literally went through every database of courts, U.S. Squash, Squash Canada, and called and emailed every club. So I was like, let's, I'm going to find out what's going on. The shocking part of that was that there were so many closures and court removals that it was every day was just a shock. I was, I was blown away. So I started to say, what's going on here? Maybe there's something that we're not seeing um, because it's sort of quiet and, and, and maybe there's some erosion happening. That's, that's a serious concern. So, you know what I, and then I started researching uh, URSA, which is the governing body of uh, health clubs. They're a, uh, an organization. They did an annual report and they, I think they said it was 13.9% decline in participation at commercial health clubs in North America. And then SGB, which is a, a sporting goods um, uh, uh, publication, stated roughly the same decline. So um, I started to question everything at that point. Are playing numbers accurate? Um, you know, the on Wikip Wikipedia, we're saying 20 million. And I'm, I'm thinking that doesn't make sense. Like I added up all the clubs in North America and I said, okay, if every club is 200 players, that doesn't get us nearly to a million players in North America, not even close. So those, that's where I sort of started. So for me, my, the exercise, I'm a bit hands off from the sport at this point. I do own a squash club, but, um, it, it's just, the data seems to be way off. So that's, that's kind of my starting point of getting, let's get our, are we losing numbers? And if so, what, at what pace, you know, it's, it's sort of like owning a business. If, you know, to, to simplify it, if, um, you know, you own a health club and you're losing a hundred members a month and only gaining 30, you know, your burn rate 70, what's happening in squash? Because these are the things that happen sort of, quietly and before it's in then it reaches a tipping point where you just have no nothing to hang on to the courts the courts go um and they're hard to get back like right now i'm working on several projects for other racket sports and the available space in north america is finite it's limited and there's groups fighting for the space so when a squash court goes to me it's heartbreaking because i know how difficult it is to, to add that court back to the inventory. So anyway, that's that's basically, my thing is all about the data. You know, I, I'm not heavily involved in the, the sport in any capacity. So anyway. Oh, there we go. Yeah, thanks, Ed. That's, that was really, uh, really good stuff there. Just wondering, uh, is, is that, that's just North American data, right? Yeah, I looked at UK because there was some available data, I mean, um, just looking at it here, I think Sport England, I mean, Zena and Peter would know more than I would, was saying that uh, it, I think in 2016, there are 425,000 players, and in 2021, 105,000. I don't know how accurate that is. But again, what I'm saying is it's one of those things where you can get distracted with a lot of shiny objects and, and not realize that the, the, the world is collapsing, you know, where it's and, and I never really thought that until I started to see so many closures of courts. Um, 
And then talking to like the big chains, like uh, LA Fitness, Lifetime, people I know there, where they're they're pulling away from the sport, um, it, it just it it didn't feel normal to me. You know, it felt sort of like there was a change happening. Okay, um, Rob, you you have a question? Yeah, um, Ed, Ed, I think you're absolutely spot on um, with with everything that you've said, but. I, I do want to, before we go, hey, uh, you know, chicken little, the sky is falling. Um, we also have to realize that there are community centers. And uh, in those community centers, like ours here in Whistler, uh, it's hard to find a court. It, 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 it's, it's difficult to book a court. You have to book several days in advance. And, um, and you don't know who, who's, pl- like, who's playing because every time somebody comes on court, it's somebody new that's playing the game. And by looking at them play, you know that this is maybe their first, one of their first dozen times on court. So in community centers, you're going to see a whole lot more than the 200 you're talking about. So I can see the potential for those numbers to be much higher than what you might have estimated. But I also want to kind of uh, agree with you that this is a dire situation. And um, yeah, so uh, good on for you for uh, collecting all that data though. Wonderful. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Uh, Zena, you, you've raised your hand as well. Yeah, just, very, just, just to comment on that. I think we're a, we're a sport that's um, really data poor in, in a time when we need to be really data driven. I think that's one of the things that certainly WSF is aware of is the fact that we need to try and address that and not necessarily try and do it all ourselves, but partner with others, you know, and, and I think people like Ross Gehring with the Squash Players app, hopefully will, will will kind of help us with some of that and track some of that to make us a, a far a far more data-driven sport rather than being so data poor. Yes, uh, I was going to say about, uh, about his app, um, he posted something the other day about Korea and uh, it, just, it struck me as being very odd because it, on his app, there's like five courts. And I know there are like uh, 10 court, uh, uh, like ten squash clubs within a very small radius just in Seoul. We think he's probably uh, about 30 to 40 percent um, of the way uh, towards um, completion. In some countries, he, he's much further ahead, but there's yeah. still some work to go. But it's a great concept and I think it will serve the sport well. Absolutely. And uh, before we move on, uh, Cleve, you've, you've raised your hand. Yeah, just a quick question for Ed. Um, first of all, big fan. I've listened to your previous broadcast on Jerry's show. So um, thanks for all of that. Uh, when you were reaching out to the big chains, did you ever get a feel for what their motivation was for, you know, I'm thinking like Lifetime had such a strong investment in squash, you know, 15 years ago, and it's dissipated away did they give you any reasoning behind that they weren't able to build up the business they didn't get enough membership off of that program or uh, just to uh, take this one and try to answer in about a minute okay hey Ed, you're on mute you're on mute sorry Ed. um yeah essentially th- these chains react to what's popular right so they're agnostic they don't they have no passion towards squash or indoor cycling or whatever. So when they see something that starts to um, go down in popularity, they simply remove it. And the problem is, you know, if you're passionate about indoor cycling or squash, how dare you? 
you know, but to them, it's just sort of, oh, it's not popular. So they can cut it without any kind of emotion. So <laughs> what they're seeing, Lifetime is hugely betting on pickleball. Um, LA Fitness, I know very well the, the senior people at LA Fitness and the, the quote about squash was not good. Um, and they, they just, it, it, it's not top, it's just not culturally relevant for them. So, you know, there's so many things they can put into a space and it's not even about, you know, a lot of times it's not even about numbers. It's just, it's not popular. It's just not, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's so have the buzz. Yeah. It's just, it's a, you know, I work with, I'm doing a lot of private public partnership consulting and it's the same thing with the rec centers, the municipalities. It's just a non, like you bring it up in a meeting. Oh, you could put, you know, in this rec center, you could maybe throw a couple of squash courts and everyone looks at you like, what? Squash. Like, it's just not even, it, it's just, and that's different from the nineties where kind of you knew someone that played. Um, it's just, it's, it's irrelevant at this point. And sadly. Got it. Thanks, got Ed. It. Uh, thanks a lot for that. Let's move on to, uh, to Zena. I've got uh, uh, just in terms of uh, the WSF's uh, vision, uh, what are the challenges that squash uh, faces in terms of uh, growing the game? Sorry, you're on mute there again, uh, Zena. Sorry about that. I'm muting everyone. Uh, yeah, no, don't that's mean to fine. be an um, idiot. But, yeah, uh, no. Um, <laughs> So probably it's probably worth just um, first of all just in in terms of clarity of what WSF does and I I can have a view across a range of different roles I've played, but the WSF is actually um, if I describe it as a building, WSF is the foundations. You might not necessarily see all that it does, but actually if if you don't build strong foundations, the building falls down. And so what what we are is a as a, a confederation of member federations. So we work through the national federations in order to try to achieve our strategy. And that's probably quite important because we support those and encourage those member nations because they're much closer to the growth of the sport than than, than world squash can be. Um, so I think that's and, and so we're a small organization, but 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 critically important in terms of the foundations of the sport, whether it's about stewardship of the rules of the of squash, about regulating standards for courts and rackets and balls and about anti-doping and keeping a clean sport, um, managing the the awarding of world championships. So there's, there's there's lots of aspects that that are core to it. But if I was to say, you know, what are the what are the key challenges that we face? I think promoting the sport more effectively is 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 critical um, in terms of a fun, healthy social lifestyle activity, which actually fits the modern lifestyle as well now or even better now than it perhaps did in the in the 70s and 80s when we had the big boom. Um, but, you know, it, it needs to meet the needs of those modern, busy lifestyles. And I, I think that we, we we talked earlier about, mentioned earlier about, about how what, what a great sport squash is and how well it fits. I think that clubs and venues are the heartbeat of our sport. If, if they thrive, the sport will thrive. If they struggle, so will the sport. Um, so I think clubs and venues are absolutely critical and, and um, they need to be visible, vibrant and, and viable. I think that comes to the sales and marketing aspect of it and the whole customer experience in a leisure, in a, in a, a probably a, a busier, um, a, a, an increasingly crowded and competitive leisure market. I think squash is sometimes perceived as difficult to play, especially if you're if you're watching the top men play, for example, 
And I don't think the double yellow dot ball has helped is helping us really. And I think too many people think the double yellow ball is the only is the only ball we have and it, it kills the game at a lower level. So the right ball and promoting the right ball, I think, is is really critical. And as is, um, I think the promotion of squash 57, it's easy, it's inclusive, it's fun, it's healthy, it's easier to play. Um, I think it widens our market and widens the retention of our game. And so it, it is a it is still squash. It's just played in a, a different equipment. And um, so I think, you know, I think there are a lot of challenges in there, but I think there's there's. I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with the modern with the game we have. I think it fits modern lifestyles, and I think we have to think more effectively about how we promote it effectively, and how we and and how we expose the game. And when we were in a think tank with European Squash um, two weekends ago, one of the overwhelming things that came through across all of the themes that were discussed was social media. We're not good at social media. And and we probably need to up our game in terms of the stories we can convey about the sport across social media. So I think social media is not not, you know, in terms of promoting the game, social media is probably one of our weaknesses that we need to turn into a strength. So, I mean, there are lots of others. But if if you were to ask what are the challenges, I think those are some of the challenges that face the sport as a whole. And we need to work together across member federations and lots of other partners if we're going to address all of that, it's really about working, working together and using the entrepreneurship that we have across the sport. Yes, um, I'm just going to, I was going to say the, the PSA, they seem to do a pretty good job with their social media. I mean, they, they've got whoever it is that's running it there. They, they have a really good presence. They have some good videos of Matt, like after matches there, just the way they presented on squash TV, something, something like that, I think needs to, to be spread out more amongst uh, may- maybe national federations, some someone to be take responsibility maybe mm-hmm. for that type of thing. Yeah. Well, WSF now shares a media. We share our media resource with PSA. Okay. Um, I should say that's made a real difference because it's one of the things we identified first when, when I came into post and when William as chief exec came in, we share a media resource. And since then in the latest, um, the latest media world, um social media um rankings and ratings for all sports squash has appeared in those for the very first time and we appeared as number one in the most improved international federations for twitter coverage we start from a low base but it's a start and we 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 need to grow that but we'll only do it by working together collaboratively across regional federations psa national federations we need to work together on that, but that's really key, really key, particularly if we've got some good stories to tell. Absolutely, and there are plenty. Uh, Cleve, you have a question, or yeah, you have your a raised hand? Yeah, yes, I do have a not only a raised hand but a question. Um, wanted to have Zenic talk talk to me a little bit about the about the double yellow dot ball um, uh, and how you feel that it kills the game at the lower levels because. You know, that's something that we're looking at very closely here at Open Squash. And we have a whole data project around what ball to use when and average rally length and how hot the ball gets. And I've got an industrial temperature gun I'm taking ball temps with. It's really fun. Um, but could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, certainly. Um, so um, the double the double yellow 
dot ball was introduced, oh, I don't know, was it 10 years ago to 15 years ago? I don't Peter might know that. Um, but it was introduced because the technology and the fitness of the players increased so much that the the, the yellow the yellow dot ball was too bouncy. So we introduced the double yellow dot ball for the top players, the professionals. But part of the problem is, is that people see the pros playing with the double yellow and clubs tend there's a lot of clubs that will only only um only supply the double yellow because they don't think there's anything else or it's easier to only pr- provide one ball. But you know the, the 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 W yellow ball takes a long time to warm up. It needs some it needs a fair amount of oomph behind it to warm it up, and it doesn't bounce that well. There are four balls. You know the the four balls are designed for different levels of player, and um, I think there's too often you you go and see beginners playing with the double yellow, whereas they should be playing with a bouncier ball, and that's where squash fifty seven or what UK and Australia call racquetball is um it, it actually solves that problem because you're playing with a bigger a bigger bouncier ball that doesn't take much warming up and i, I do think that's something and, and you know we are wsf is is working actively with dunlop to do another global promotion on using the right ball um in the hope that because you know the whole essence of the sport is about rallies and and, and about your fitness and whatever and having fun and a beginner can't do that with a double yellow dot. We need we need to really make sure that clubs make available and promote um, the, the, the full range of balls. Edward, Ed, uh, you have your hand raised. Yeah, I was going to agree with that. I think that um, the, the the ball thing is a huge problem. Um, anecdotally, you know, as a fifty five year old um, player with injuries and weight. <laughs> um, the game with the yellow, the double yellow ball is, is essentially flawed for me. Um, you know, I, if I'm playing and, you know, I'm handsy enough that I hit a, a cross court drop, I can't cover the play action, the front. So then it's kind of this flawed game and people have put a carpet down. They, they play games where you have to play past the short line. It's, it's just, you know, and there's an ego to that. Right. It's sort of I don't want to have to use this other ball. So it, it, I think it requires a huge barking campaign to say, no, no, you should be using this ball because you can't play with a double yellow ball. You can't bend and 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 retrieve a drop shot in the front and pull off of that drop and play. It's just it's just not realistic. And I think if there was a really robust campaign in that direction, I think it would be fantastic because um, um, we always talk about beginners. But I think there's the real problem is middle-aged players playing a game that's just not physically possible with the double yellow for many, you know, unless you're very fit. Xena, uh, yes. Yeah, no, no. And I think it's the case at the at the bottom end and in terms of Masters as well. You know, I see kind of over 80s sometimes, over 80s in national championships or world championships playing with a a double yellow dot and it's it's two shot rallies and I don't think that's the essence of the game and they they wonder why the game is so short and it's not because of the scoring although they might blame the scoring it's because the rallies are short and the rallies are short because they're not because they're playing with the wrong ball so I just yeah yeah, yeah. that's it's, it's interesting but it's a it's a um yeah it's a huge sorry, ego Ed. thing sorry sorry Peter has, yeah. you have your hand raised go ahead Sorry, you're on mute there, Peter. Sorry. Without knowing the ins and outs of all the latest balls, I'm not I'm not up to speed with all of them, but um it does seem like we do have the options for different types of balls at the moment. So it seems to me like it's more 
maybe again it's more about the marketing because uh, I was just just thinking back to the I was at Roehampton Club in London a couple of weeks ago and there were some kids playing and I don't know what ball it was actually called but it wasn't a squash ball and it wasn't a racket ball it was something in the middle of it <laughs> um, and actually they were having a really good game because it was quite bouncy they were using normal squash rackets but a bigger ball than a squash ball um, so I think it sounds like there are alternatives out there but it probably just isn't that well publicised about what different types of balls, um, you know, can be used. But I, t- I mean, I totally agree. The double yellow dot, especially for the youngsters who are just beginning, and probably for the you know, some of the older people who want to carry on playing, isn't 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 the best ball to use. Thanks, Peter. Uh, one. Nope. I think we lost you then. Gary, you muted yourself. Oh, oh there we go. I muted myself. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, Cleve, I, I was going to say uh, one more. Oh, I was, we're gonna okay. Move on I was just going to next. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with the whole ball issue. Um, we're working hard at Open Squash to develop an internal culture that recognizes that based around the fact that that's how you improve more quickly. It's just like, it's like, if you're serious about getting better at squash, then you can't use a double yellow. If you're, you know, just starting out, um, you're going to get more rallies and, and, and get a feel for the game much more quickly if you use the appropriate ball, but it's not just a marketing problem. Um, it's also a little bit, um, of resistance among some teaching pros because the teaching pros have been, have been, have been working with the same ball for 20, 30 years. And so, um, you know, there's a little bit of, uh, I, I had this in a previous career I was doing, and I was focused on technology and education. And, uh, as a teacher, I know it's hard to change the way you teach. And so I think there's, there's a little bit of getting our teaching pros on board with this as well and seeing how much of a benefit it is for them. Thanks, uh, thanks, Cleve. Let's move on. Uh, now I've got uh, Peter. You're up next. Um, now there's not uh, there's not much out there uh, on the independent squash minds uh, of late, but there was a, a a piece in I think it was squash uh, squash site about a year and a half or so ago, and it really uh, went into some detail there. That, that it, I think it's mm-hmm. yourself, uh, Rob Owen, um, Nick Matthew, maybe, mm-hmm. and uh, Laura. Is it Masera, mm-hmm. Laura Masera, I believe, are all involved in that. So uh, the, the the team is amazing, the team you've assembled. What uh, what does ISM feel it will uh, do to deal with uh, growth in the game? Mm-hmm. I mean, shall I just start out with, with giving a bit, bit of background about, about the group? Um, and I suppose some, some of the reasons why it was set up in the first place. And actually, Jerry, probably everybody um, have, have probably described the reasons, really. I think it was... I think um, I think we all, you know, all the members of the of, of ISM felt um, it's a bit of a burning platform at the moment. There's some real challenges within squash. We've all probably all the all the members have been involved for quite a long time um, and seen, you know, different stages of squash development. And I suppose um, there was a bit of a concern around, you know, what is the future of, you know, what is the future of our game? So um, we got together as a group and. I mean, probably one of the reasons why you haven't really heard much about us is because I suppose we're trying to work um, under the radar, really. We we're, um, we, we, we met with England squash, we've met with um, the PSA, we've met with a number of, of individual um, squash club owners um, in England. And I suppose what we're trying to really do is um, listen to people, 
and also offer our recommendations. Um, so, but but it's not really about publicising what we're doing. So I suppose you know some of the work that we're doing kind of goes under the radar a little bit and hopefully is influencing different organisations, different squash clubs, etc. But just to give you kind of a bit of a flavour of, of, I suppose, a couple of things that, we, that, that we're that we kind of working on at the moment, um, we're actually just in the process of setting up a, a group. Um, uh, so, so, so this will be, so ISM will support, will support this group, but um, won't necessarily be leading it. And that's getting together a group of individuals who have run successful squash clubs in England or been involved in, in successful kind of sporting ventures. Um, I suppose with the idea of, just trying to understand what's kind of worked well um, in the past and, 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 and what actually is working well at the moment. Um, and then using that and using some of those thoughts and recommendations and ideas um, to then spread to, uh, I think initially to, to, to other squash clubs in England, but then eventually, you know, um, elsewhere as well. Um, and I'll take everyone's points of view on board about how squash, you know, the challenges of squash, but there also are some real positives as well. And I think that's worth mentioning. I mean, the number of people who we're speaking to at the moment who are going to be part of the working group have got very, very successful clubs in England. So there's a club in Leamington, there's a club in Bedford, um, there's a couple of clubs in London, and they are extremely popular at the moment. In fact, they can't, they haven't got enough courts. Um, Pontefract is another example in England. So there are examples of clubs that, are especially in England that I know of that are extremely successful and I suppose it's trying to understand what they're doing and trying to you know spread that learning um I mean it might not be applicable to every single squash club all over the world but I think there's definitely things um you know that that, that can be learned so um yeah so that's one I suppose that's one one initiative that we're involved with we've also supported um a couple of kind of in the background a couple of um events that potentially weren't going to happen during uh, COVID or just after COVID um, and got them up and running. Um, so, yeah, so we're doing, hopefully doing a bit of work under the under the radar. I think we'll, uh, the, the team now has uh, uh, kind of expanded a little bit. We've also got Jenny Diner, um, who is, uh, used to be a top 10 in the world squash player. She's now a kind of a business and sports psychologist. She's involved as well. Um, so, so yeah, trying to bring it, bring together all our collective different experiences and, um, and support um, where we can. Yeah, is it a bit like a sort of like a consultancy in a way as well, uh, Peter? I, I suppose so. Other than we're not getting paid for it, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah I suppose so. I mean, I mean, I mean, I suppose we're there really to kind of offer advice, offer recommendations. I suppose we've also had a number of people reach out to us as well, which has been really, you know, which has been really useful and, and helpful. So, um, you know because we're you know we've got a collective group and a group name there's different people from different spheres from different spheres in squash and outside of squash as well who've kind of come to us and offered their opinions offered their you know thoughts and then we can you know relay those um ideas as well to like i said different um you know the, the different associations and different individuals within within squash well, it really bodes well. I think, you know, just given the fact that, you know, the team that's assembled, there's a lot of star power, you know, uh, mm. there. And that, that can really uh, sort, sort of get things uh, set in motion, if you know what I mean. Mm. Um, Ed, you, uh, you've got your hand raised, sir. Yeah, I think that um, that's an excellent initiative. You know, one of the 
you know, my comp, my observations through the years, I think that, you know, what you're doing, Peter, you know, looking at these successful clubs and also open squash in New York um, are, are hugely important because what we've done is sort of been um, reliant on these chains at the, at their pleasure to mm. put our courts in their facilities. Mm. So if we really unpack it, it's sort of like um, David Lloyd or, lifetime oh you know they, they happen to put courts in but they're really not they're not our clubs and and they could easily remove them if something trendy comes along or they, there's a board meeting or whatever so having our own facilities where we figure out a model that works whether it's non-profit whether it's a commercially viable club like owning our clubs rather than you know hoping that a rec center puts in two courts in the back corner or a big chain does the same thing. Uh, and I think that's important. Like open squash is a huge breakthrough because it's, it's our squash clubs, right? It's not, you know, uh, a couple of courts in a chain. Anyway, that's just my, my point. Yes. Uh, Zena. I think one of the challenges we have is that we have so many different cultures and business models across the world. And I think we have, probably common culture that we're talking across this particular um, panel, but there are some very different um, uh, business models. And certainly, you know, you look at the UK and the Commonwealth, it's very different to much of the rest of Europe, for example. And, you know, there are, there are, there are parts of the world and I will name places like, like Russia and, and, and Poland and other places where, you know, they're, they're building successful facilities and people are paying a hundred dollars a court and they're they're full you know they're commercially driven and we've got very many different cultures in it and across europe many of the facilities are either commercial or there's a, or there's a difference there's a um there's a distinction between the owner and the club and the club doesn't own the court and therefore it's very much driven there their sustainability is very much driven upon real estate prices and that's the reason why they lose some courts so i do think you know we just need to be conscious of the very different models that are across the world and the cultures in which they sit um, and not try to think that there's a one size fits all because there never will be. Yes, Peter. Oh, you're on mute. Sorry. <laughs> Just building on what Zena said, I mean, it's, it's, and again, I suppose trying to put a kind of a positive slant on what's happening as well at the moment, there are countries, you know, Zena mentioned Poland that are extremely successful at the moment and, um, you know, building squash courts, getting more more participation, more participation. Um, you, you might say that they're um, you know kind of offshoots, and, and you know that, that that's kind of going against the norm. But you know, there, you know there, there is some success around the world, which is you know which is interesting. Um, so so again, I think it's you know it, it's trying to understand you know what different countries, what different clubs, what different business models, uh, you know, what, what, what what's out there? What are different people doing? Because, um, yeah, this, this, and, I, and I think, I suppose the other thing is it, it goes inside, I think all sports go in cycles in, in different countries. Um, I know my, you know, my day in the kind of 80s, early 90s, Germany was absolutely massive and booming. Now it's not quite so big, but Poland's probably, you know, a bit bigger. And in, in fact, if, and if you look at the world, you know, the, the, I suppose the top, squash playing nations and, and world rankings it's probably a lot more diverse now than what it was in my day in the 90s where it was australia england pakistan 
you know, now it's a lot more diverse and a lot more different, you know, countries um, producing kind of top squash players. So, so yeah, so I suppose I'm just sort of just trying to balance the, um, <laughs> uh, you know, balance the, um, I wouldn't say negativity, but, you know, th- there are some good things happening and um, there's more different countries playing squash. So that's obviously positive and good news. Um, Ed, uh, you, you have your hand raised. Yeah, I, I, you know, I agree that, you know, we need to be positive. Um, you know, when I look at yeah, uh, Poland is always cited whenever the doom and gloom narrative is, is uh, mm-hmm. raised. I don't, I haven't done the data on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I want to look at hard data, you know, for example, you know, the Egypt thing is interesting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there are 105 million people, I believe in Egypt. And my understanding is that there's less than 30 clubs. I haven't done a deep dive. So sometimes we equate professional success um, with uh, viral adoption of the sport. You know what I mean? And that's a a dangerous, you know, like, you know, when I have, uh, you know, business, I have sales guys and say we've lost, you know, a bunch of members and we had a really bad quarter and they say, oh, but I closed this account. Great. But we, you know, so I worry the Poland narrative, I think is fantastic. I think it's all good, but also to say, okay, Poland, how many clubs are there? How many clubs closed? Mm-hmm. Maybe some entrepreneur figured out a model that works in a certain mm-hmm. city, um, like breaking it down and looking at the hard data because we can delude ourselves mm-hmm. into thinking. And, and again, what I'm seeing is massive decline. Mm-hmm. And then whenever I raise that, I have to sort of be the specter of doom and I'm not. And then it's sort of like, well, but you know what, you know, like there's a lot of people playing in Egypt and I'm like, okay, yeah. Is that data or is that just something that feels good and nice to say? That's what I worry about. And I don't know. I don't know. I'll, I'll have to do a deep dive into Poland, but um, that's the knee jerk reaction that people have is they, they say, okay, that's horrible. Stop talking about that. But, guess what Poland there's this club and it's sold out so that's that's not what's happening well um Zina you have your hand raised but I'm just going to uh we're going to move on now because I know Ed you have to leave but just I I just wanted to mention uh and Zina you might uh, speak to this as well um because Kareem is your vice president at the uh, WSF I believe um they just had a junior tournament and I had him on my podcast recently it was a week-long junior tournament, 900 juniors in the tournament, 900. Like, where do the uh, – I mean, that that's sort of – it's a, the exception to the rule, obviously. But, uh, I mean, that that's a huge number. Zena? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that Egypt is an exception at the present moment. And having been over there three times recently and met with the Minister of Youth and Sport – you know that squash is just so huge in um in, in Egypt there aren't that many competitor sports so it's not such a crowded um industry a leisure industry for kids to choose and because they've got role models they've got great role models and they have done for the last 10 15 years that's gradually grown mm-hmm. um the infrastructure and the building of infrastructure in Egypt is amazing and they are building squash courts and squash centers or sports facilities, huge, massive sports facilities um, and squash cities with squash in there. And that's making a big difference. The, the, the kids come out of school, thousands of kids come out of school and they go straight to the squash club. They play squash, they go home, they have their tea and they do their homework and they do the same thing. 
um, several times a week. And, and they built up a culture. Um, Kareem has 2,500 kids um, on his Wadi Degla um, squash program, 2,500 kids. He has 160 coaches. That's only one chain of clubs. So, you know, yes, that's if you want to know why, um, why Egypt is successful, it's they've got a big base to their pyramid. And um, but however, the the then the, the 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 downside of that is, is that if they've not made it to the pro to be a pro by 19, they fall off the cliff. Mm-hmm. So there are pros and cons, but you know their investment in infrastructure and in a sport is 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 very significant. Thanks, uh, Zena. Now I want to give Ed his uh, the final question. He, he's only with us here for a couple of more minutes, yeah, Ed. Um, now uh, I know you need to run, so before you do, could you elaborate on your feelings uh, surrounding uh, foc- focusing on top-down growth? Um, yeah. So. I've been, uh, 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 you know, full disclosure, I'm the interim president of the uh, North American Padel League. It's a new pro league in, in North America. So I've been following Padel and Pickleball very closely, um, very closely. And so I'm sitting on gr- uh, various groups that um, community groups all the way to national groups, Zoom calls, the whole thing. And what I've recognized in those sports is they are completely bottom up and we are distracted by all these pro leagues that are starting in pickleball and all these celebrities getting into pickleball, but their core basis of success is drop in play and accessibility. And, and, and it's, it's the culture is so different. And in my observation in squash, even me mm-hmm. um, being aware of this is that we tend to be, sort of juniors and top down and um, th- this sort of thing. We're, we're, what they're doing is just absolute grassroots, free racket, show up and play. Um, you know, I sat in on an anecdotally on a meeting for the Toronto pickleball group and I'm listening like a mouse in the corner trying to learn. And at one point someone's, you know, said, okay, who needs ambassador cards? And I said, what, what are ambassador cards? They literally print out business cards and walk around to coffee shops and hand them out to come play pickleball. So I'm seeing, a, you know, this cultural um, and, and I don't blame our sport. It's not like I'm calling anyone out. I just think it's they have this kind of new whiteboard mentality where they're sort of like, we got a stupid name. Nobody knows who we are. Let's get out there and get people on court. Um and my, my two sisters who were, you know, very inactive, this is very a- anecdotal, are playing and they have about 38 friends that are playing. And it's just from this kind of bottom up, you know, approach. So I, I think that's an issue in our sport. But anyway. Anyone want to respond to that? Yes, uh, Zena. You're on mute. Sorry. Sorry, I'm on mute. And <laughs> I think it's a very relevant point, you know, and, and, and there's a lot of discussion about pickleball. But I think we need to focus on what we can do. And what is it that pickleball is? I think pickleball is to tennis, for me, at what squash 57 is to squash. And we, we're we going to be driven by occupancy. How well our clubs thrive is driven by the occupancy of our courts and the diversity of our players. And for me squash 57 or what uk calls racquetball and 
um, is is a is one of our solutions, which is there. And you know, in in Canada, Lolly Gillen is trying to promote it, and she's taking it on board and thinks it's brilliant. You know, and 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 we're trying now to get more nations to pick up uh, squash fifty seven because it's easy, it's inclusive, it's fun, it's a more it's a healthy sport because it gives you all around fitness. And it it draws upon a wider market. It it it, it reaches a wider market, and it also retains our our older squash players. And and but we're not there's not enough nations who are picking it up and trying it because we're playing it on the same on the same in the same space. And we're it's a it's a tactic, a marketing tactic that will increase the occupancy of our courts. I'm I'm from a I'm from a club that has played. Um, squash 57 or racquetball since the early 80s and it's a very it's a thriving club and it's thrived and invested reinvested because it's it's gained marginal revenue from um, from racquetball players and and it means that at least half of the club is female um so it, it, it makes a huge difference we've got players who are still old previous squash players who are playing into their 80s and still members so I you know and I think I don't know we're missing a trick here because there's there seems to be a pushback from some nations and some regions about adopting it. But for me, um, it ticks all the boxes in terms of what we're trying to achieve. And for me, it, it is to squash what what um, paddle is to tennis. There we go. Rob, you had your hand raised. You're on mute, by the way. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I... What uh, Ed has stated cannot be understated. It, we, we do absolutely have this top-down approach, and we need to build this bottom-up approach. And uh, a, a lot of my ideas, um, you know, uh, as, as we continue this conversation may, may seem inflammatory, but um, as, a, as a community, we really do need to understand what what physically drives a new shy player to participate and understand that process because that new shy player who's never played before, who's going to be very intimidated by the whole concept of standing on a glass back wall court. Um, uh, we have to understand where they're coming from. Uh, everything needs to revolve around small social groups of three or four friends and those are called clusters and if you and if you study networking effects those small clusters of brand new players are the key to growing uh, anything and to growing our sport in particular and this is kind of why I've you know I I have uh, I have a an issue with uh, the um, potential potentially calling out the Olympics as the savior to our sport, but maybe I'll talk about that a little that, later. That, that's but. coming up soon, Rob. <laughs> uh, Cleve, you have a comment. Uh, yeah, I just um, uh, in terms of bottom up versus top down, agree. We need to, you know, we've been a little bit too top down, and we need to be more bottom up. I do want to point out that we can't. That if we're if we're really going to focus on bottom up, we have to do it in a different way. 
um, than pickleball does. Um, I don't think squash is, uh, you know, one of the beauty, beautiful things about pickleball is you can have a blast within 15 minutes of picking up a paddle. You know, it's like you can tell a story in the middle of a rally and it's like it's fun and it's it's social. And, you know, and so it's had this explosive um, there's an, you know, in, in the States, it's just booming. Uh, and that but that that's not the case with squash. And so if we're going to have people coming in, um, picking it up and we wanted to go bottom up, we've got to, again, use the right ball. We've got to have the right programming in place. We've got to have scaffolding around their experience so that it is fun because it, it is not as easy. It is harder to pick up. It has infinitely more depths squash as a sport, in my personal opinion. Um, but it's something that takes, it takes time to get, we have a steep learning curve. That's just something I think we have to acknowledge to squash. You know, and we need to work on how to flatten that using the right ball is the right way to do it. Um, making sure that people are socialized very quickly into a club and they're, you know, the way and just like um, uh, Rob was saying, people, lots of people just have a hard time picking up games. So we need to get them in a box league. We need to get them socialized. We need to get them in a clinic. We need to introduce them to people. Um, we need to really make a full on effort for new members or people who are, have dropped in to get them pulled in because it won't happen as automatically as it does in the other sports. Thanks, Cleve. Yeah, uh, let me just add too. Uh, uh, squash uh, was voted the was the, the most in Forbes magazine the best the best workout of any sport, right? And I think we we also don't want to lose vision of that either because once we start, you know, we're looking at making it easier. And then it becomes like pickleball where you're out there, like you say, telling stories during rallies, but that's yeah. not what squash is, right? I mean, squash, squash is a, it's an intense game. There are other sports out there right now or, or other activities that are very popular, that are very intense uh, workouts. They're very popular. You go like all this, um, well, what Paul Cole does for his training, what's that CrossFit, right? CrossFit. Extremely yeah. popular these days. I mean, you're just catering to a different group. But um, now, Eduardo, um, you said you had to leave. Are you are you good to continue? Oh, you're on mute. I, I've got you on mute again. Uh, sorry. I just want to apologize. I have to go. Um, I appreciate um, being in this group. Um, and, uh, you know, I hope we can do it again. And I'm happy to talk to any of you offline and, and flesh out ideas. Thanks, Jerry. And thanks, everyone. Uh, Eduardo, I just want to say thank you for coming and a really big thank you because I had a fantastic uh, Valentine's Day dinner last night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't ask me about mine. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Take care, man. Eduardo. Yeah. Bye. Cheers, guys. Bye. Okay. Uh, Rob, you're up next. Uh, the Olympics, uh, in your estimation, uh, will not save squash. Why not? Well, uh, I mean, this is counter to what uh, what I've been hearing all over the place. Uh, squash is not the only sport that is suffering. Youth participation in physical activity per capita has been declining across the board for more than two decades. Squash just happens to be one of the many declining sports. Society has undergone dramatic changes, and the contributing factors include lifestyle, the way we use technology, increased 
academic demands and screen time. Today's society has become more culturally focused than ever before at the expense of physical activity. Let me provide an example. So although American football is the number one, it's the most popular high school sport in the U.S., participation in the sport has declined by over 10% in the past decade. And on top of that, ticket revenue to NFL games has dropped 7% in value uh, in the past year alone, while inflation increased 7.5% during that same time. This is an aggregate decline of over 14%, very dramatic for one year alone. Now, similar declines can be seen across many other sporting activities. So contrary to the direct engagement of the NFL, actually, they've actually doubled in valuation over, over the past decade. This is because culture uh, of these sports are, are on the rise. So we, we buy our Toronto Raptors jerseys because we are the North. In Canada, we want to be culturally connected to other Canadians. And we connect through sport, sports media, whether it's on ESPN or distributed through channels like TikTok, have been dramatically increasing. Watching a football game on a screen is no different than watching a soap opera. We, we bond over these shared experiences. In fact, sports is better than TV because it's unscripted and, and it brings us together culturally over the experience based on our geography and based on other cultural references. Experiencing sport does not drive participation though. It creates cultural identity. So the Olympics is not gonna change participation in our sport. We need to do this ourselves. So don't rely on it. It's only if we can grow our sport and change its perception among a younger audience that we will be finally accepted into the Olympic fraternity. Anyone want to respond to that yet, Zena? I'm the obvious one to respond to that. Yes. Um, yeah, uh, and I think it's a, and I think it's a really very valid point. Um, I, I, and I understand that. Um, I should say that. You know, World Squash is the organisation um, which is recognised by the uh, the uh, International Olympic Committee and therefore would lead an Olympic bid. And we've had four recent bids, four or five bids in the last 20 years. Um, we have a current one. What I should say is that I do think that the Olympic bid is is embedded somewhere in our strategy, but it's only one part of and we are not relying on it. It's a bonus if we happen to get into the Olympics because I think it will bring added value to the profile and the exposure of the sport. And also it's a value to our national federations and they are our members. Um, so I think it adds to it, but it's but, but it's part of an overall strategy and it's only one, one small part in there. Um, I think also what I should say in, in, in response as well is, is that World Squash is also um, 
now engaging in esports and developing an esport um, option. And that's such, such that we have a presence and we reach a new audience and, and hopefully we'll use that as another route to bring young people into actually playing the game. So we have very many, we have a multifaceted strategy of which the Olympics is one, but but by all means, if it doesn't, if it happens, it will help accelerate certain parts of our strategy. But if we don't get into the Olympics, we have a, 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 a very robust strategy that's got so many other strands to it. Yeah, see, I don't think we, I don't think we should be. Sorry, Rob. Sorry, I, I don't think we should be not going after those Olympic bids. I I don't believe that we should throw out the baby with the bathwater, but we just have to have a renewed understanding of what is it going to take as a as a as a bottom up strategy to grow the sport and that's really where we need to spend a lot more time and energy yeah i wouldn't disagree with that at all see now i was just going to ask you with the esport uh, initiatives that you were talking about uh, is that uh, in connection with uh, interactive squash at all no i think interactive squash is a, is a, is a different uh, is a different um um option i think and and i'm very supportive of it having been um one of the first in my role in birmingham one of the first to install an interactive squash court i think it has huge potential um i think if you look at squash what are the distinctive features of squash as a racket sport well we don't have a net to start with we've got two players on on the same side but we've also got walls and what can we do with a small space with with four walls, and I, and I think we need to develop that the technology around what we could do with our with our with our infrastructure. I think interactive squash is a fantastic development, as is the glass floor. You know what we can do with an LED lit glass floor, um, and and I, I just think that's that's part of the technology, the many parts of technology that are really quite exciting for squash that we can do that actually um, other racket sports don't have that same kind of opportunity. I think it's building our distinctiveness even more than we, we have already. Thank you, Zena. Uh, Cleve, uh, you're up next. Um, obviously, op Open Squash is in a unique uh, position to thrive as a nonprofit and give um, growing uh, the game a go in New York City, but NYC has its challenges. Uh, as well as with uh, which other areas wouldn't uh, have other areas wouldn't have to deal with those challenges. Uh, what aspects do you think of open squash of the open squash experience uh, should be taken on board by others, uh, potentially nonprofits in, mm -hmm. uh, in a similar effort to what you're doing to try to grow the game? Um, great questions. One I think about all the time because we're trying to open up as many new centers as we can. So I'm looking at outside the New York area. Um, first of all, I just want to say, you know, um, I, I can't tell you how, uh, you know, happy I am to hear everybody's accolades about open squash. We've only done it once. Um, we've got more to go. So let's have this conversation a year from now after we've opened up our second center and we've proven the model that can extend to not just one. Um, we were as surprised as anybody that we sold out, you know, within a couple of years here in our Midtown Manhattan location. Um, you know, it's probably the first time in my, I'm a lifelong entrepreneur. So it's the first time that my 
best case financial model actually happened, <laughs> which it's never happened in 40 years of starting companies. Uh, so there's a little bit of like, you know, is this just luck? Um, and, uh, but I think, you know, there's, 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 there's some things that we, that we have done right, uh, that I think that you could, that you could extend outside the New York city area. And some of them kind of like revolve around the topics that have come up in this, in this, in this call already. First of all, you know, we 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 totally believe in squash. Okay, we're 100 dedicated to squash. This is what Ed was talking about when he was saying we need to we need to not like piggyback on. Oh, can you please give us two courts in the back of this giant multi-sport facility? You know, we're a squash place. We want to be a temple to squash. Um, we're all squash. We're zero. I don't know jazzercise exercises. Um, and you know, by focusing on squash exclusively, I feel we can like we can better engage our members. We can get to a depth that makes squash even more rewarding than it already is. And there's a density of squash passion here that I think um, really becomes self-reinforcing and kind of gets gets the momentum going. So I think squash focus and, and being run by squash fanatics, I think that's an incredibly easy to do first step. <laughs> um, and I think it's played off. Um, second, second thing, um, and we've, this has come up again as well. Um, we take our beginners so incredibly seriously. And that's been one theme we've been talking about in this call. And the second theme has been data. And the amount of data that we're trying to wrap around the beginner experience when they first hit our website, what do they hit? Do they sign up for the free introduction to squash classes that don't need any membership? They don't, you don't need to have a racket. You don't need to have anything. You just show up on a Saturday morning. You get a free class. We'll give you a couple before you to let, give you time to decide if you love the game or not. Um, you've got to use the right ball. Uh, you've got to do the right programming. Then we've got to take that next step in the funnel and introduce those newer players to what Rob was calling your, your little cohort. We need to get them into a box league. We need to get them in engaged in the community and start that 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 path that's all of us have been on some of us like peter peter was on it as a 7 year old i was on it as a 55 year old but that path when you start getting better at squash is just so utterly rewarding and delightful and that's the magic of it that we have to do everything we can to like get that beginner to that level and by if you have the wrong ball, if you don't have the right programming around them, if you don't pay attention, if you don't welcome them by name when they walk in, there's all the ways that you can make them feel part of the community immediately. So we've done a pretty good job about uh, about um, incorporating beginners into the club, getting them introduced to everybody, making them part of the whole process. And we've done that with a tremendous amount of data around it also, because we want to look at what works and what doesn't. And then just a third thing, um, you know, we are a nonprofit. Our mission is to open up access and affordability. Uh, about 30% of our membership has some sort of economic discount, whether it's a kind of a sliding scale discount that we do for um, based off of income or like many urban squash programs, we have a lot of full scholarships available to kids, not only for their membership, but also for all the programming as well. Um, so there is a nonprofit, a very, very critical that's of our very essence. We're a nonprofit and, and, and that's that's our mission. Uh, at the same time, we run the nonprofit as if it were a for-profit business in the sense that we are just as we have the same level of urgency and, you know, um, um, planning and, and, and whiteboarding and team meetings and everything that you would have in a startup. 
you know, we, you know, it's, it's like we run this like any other enterprise that has to be able to be successful. And, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a lot of work and it takes a great team. And so we've, you know, we're hiring nonstop and looking at people that can really fit our culture and add to everything. Um, and, uh, and I think that's critical. Um, a lot of nonprofits, uh, are doing amazing, amazing things. Um, and, uh, uh, we're sort of a hybrid in the sense that, you know, culturally, you know, we want to operate as efficiently as we possibly can. And we think that's critical to making the whole thing work. Um, so I think that outside of New York city, those would be just key pieces to like Zena was saying about you know, having the right foundation in place um, for, for, for future, future growth. Um, I think those are probably the three biggest elements. Thanks a lot, Cleve. Uh, now, Peter, um, as you know, I, I think I told you when you were on the podcast about a year or so ago, one of my favorite players, one of the game's uh, great players. Uh, how do you feel uh, these days uh, the PSA is handling uh, growing the growing the game from a uh, from a high profile perspective, or or do you feel the PSA is not ideally uh, positioned to have a direct impact uh, on growing the game? Because basically, who's who's watching PSA squash TV? People like us, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. I mean, I think Zena mentioned this earlier. I, I mean, I would say looking at PSA at the moment and professional squash tournaments around the world, you know, it is, you know, it is, I would say it's very impressive. There's squash has been played lots of different countries, lots of professional tournaments um, in all different continents. Um, So I think from that angle, I think the PSA are doing a really, you know, a really good job. And they've, they've also, you know, they're also starting out, um, started out their PSA foundation, they're working probably more closely with WSF um, than ever, I would say, and also England squash. Um, I mean, I've been to the PSA offices um, last year, and actually, first thing that struck me was walking into the office. They were probably about forty employees there now, and I remember in my day uh, when the PSA office was in Cardiff, there was probably two or three PSA employees. So, you know, it's 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 growing, and actually. They've got a difficult job because, like everyone said, probably worldwide participation has gone has gone down in the last thirty years. Um, but actually, the number of professional tournaments and, and you know, kind of potential exposure has has gone up. So, for me, that's a real positive. Obviously, there's you know always things that everyone can do. You know, everyone can do better. Um, the squash TV, um, you know, that's obviously an interesting concept. That was never around in my day in the nineties and two, in the two thousands, and you know it's 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 still got some teething problems, um, but you know it's still it's still there. You can still you know you can still watch televised matches when, when almost whatever you want whenever the, whenever there's a big tournament, which is you know which is um, which is fantastic. So yeah, I think you know it's it's. Uh, it's not necessarily their remit to grow the game, though. I mean, I think that's probably what I think that needs to be made clear. I think obviously they can they, they can influence that, but their role is for the professional players, um, uh, you know, on behalf of, and 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 what they're trying to do. Everything they're trying to do is geared towards the professional players. You know, ha- you know, having said that, they've got the PSA Foundation. They are working with other organisations, and I think they're they're doing their best. And, and perhaps they probably are in a probably as a stronger stronger position as anybody. 
to with the resources that they've got to probably develop the game more um if that was part of their remit so that's probably quite you know could be quite an interesting angle to 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 look at the PSA to to have a slightly wider role in squash because I think they're well positioned to do it I just wanted to ask you, Peter, uh, because uh, you were one of the game's top players and you had a very unique uh, approach to the game. You had the two-handed uh, backhand, mm. which uh, you know, I think we all tried because of you. Uh, but I'm just wondering, um, like, you hear about the, you hear the word role model mm. and you know, hear that, especially these days with the current group of uh, players mm. in the top 10. Uh, was that something that, uh, you know, as a player, you, you uh, had in the back of your mind? What to be a role model? Yeah, the the impact of being, uh, you know, being on your best behavior and how that would impact people watch who watched you play. Um, it's a good question. I, I don't know whether it was directly at the forefront of my mind, but I, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I suppose I was brought up in quite a strict environment with parents and coaches, not to, you know, not to lose your cool. To behave reasonably well on court, behave reasonably well to the referees. Obviously, you all have your moments when you, um, you know, uh, emotions get the better of you. So I think that was probably just instilled, in, you know, in me and probably some of the people that I was playing against in my generation. As a, you know, it was that was just part of the, um, you know, part of who you were. So, but yeah, I mean, it, it's. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting time at the moment, and and it's you know some quite diverse characters on the scene, to say the least. Um, and again, just thinking of things positively, that there are some you know there are some obviously some some great role models who, pop, and I think it's I think it's always you know especially the younger generation who are just coming through you know guys in the you know late teens early twenties, it, it and and now with social media, I think people are criticised a lot more than what they used to be um so you know I, I think um you know people generally mature and develop and it's almost i think sometimes it's it's um it's quite challenging for especially you know for some of the young players who who get so good so quickly um they probably haven't quite got that you know that worldwide experience and and and, and just understanding of, of i suppose of their impact of what they do at that particular young age as they get a bit older they start to you know things can change a little bit so again i suppose i'd look at things um i look at things positively from that from that angle but yeah i mean it, it's there's definitely there's definitely too many um incidents on court at the moment i would say that that is not helping squash um so um yeah, I think anything anything that can be done to make the game easier to watch, less stoppages, less decisions, um, you know, has to be you know has to be positive for the game. Thanks, Peter. Uh, Zena, you uh, you raise your hand. Yeah, just to just to come out after, uh, just to follow up on the PSA. I think you know PSA's done a remarkable job over the last five five to eight years in growing and growing the tour, growing the growing the prize money, growing um, exposure through Squash TV. Um, I think the other things that, that has been achieved is gender is 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 about gender parity as well. Um, so last year, I think for the first time, the women's world number one earned more than the men's number one in prize money, which is great, which is a great statistic, and coverage across the world as well in terms of being truly global. Um, I think now what PSA are doing through the through the PSA Foundation, 
um, and WSF working closely with PSA Foundation on a number of projects, um, is legacy from PSA events and now working on ensuring that there is some legacy to the sport from the PSA events. And um, and just in terms of the way that the PSA has grown from a, a, a very small base is what WSF needs to do too. And I think that's where one area where a, a Olympic inclusion would help the sport significantly because those Olympic sports have significant Olympic solidarity funding that comes back down from global broadcasting and various other things. That would transform our sport as well as transforming our nations. It will give us resources to invest in the sport and in growth because that's where we're, we're really struggling at the moment, coming from a very small base. Um, you know, so So I think there's a lot of aspects there where, PSA and WSF and the PSA Foundation, um, you know, are working are working closely in terms of just trying, you know, just trying to find ways in which we can collaborate to make sure that we are growing the game. But PSA initially from top down, um, and and it gives the sport that exposure. We just need it. It will always have to be a combination of top down, bottom up, and sideways as well. Um, I, you know, I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's a multi-pronged strategy and it has to be working together. It's got to be collaborative. Thanks, Zena. Um, I'm just going to ask you to keep you uh, to stay unmuted because I'm going to continue on with you. Um, now, uh, I see a lot on uh, social media and people like to to sort of, you know, take take a hit at the WSF every now and then for, you know, what they're not doing. And you probably know you've seen a lot of this yourself or heard a lot of it, but um I'm just wondering, uh, in terms of uh, you know misconceptions, what uh, are there any misconceptions out there in terms of the reach of the WSF uh, uh, as Squash's overall governing body? I mean, I think I think there are. I think the expectations are always high, both of national federations as well as the world body. Um, so I say I came in two years ago, as did William, the chief, new chief executive. We're almost a completely new team, really. And, you know, we're starting off from a low base that we need to grow. I think we've got an ambitious strategy. And I think if we were to say what what's our key achievement over the last two years or 18 months, probably, it's been that we now have a very clear strategy um, where we're hoping to bring all our member federations and other stakeholders in behind that strategy. Um, because we are only three employees, we've got three full-time staff, uh, a few part-time consultants, um, and many expert volunteers who give their time willingly to help the sport. And that's really where PSA was eight years ago. Um, that, and, and, you know, we need to grow the sport and find that investment to grow um, to grow more. So we, we have a core role, which is, you know, our foundations. I mentioned the, steward, the stewardship of the rules, um, regulations for courts and rackets. And we have refereeing, um, you know, and refereeing does need to be a top-down activity. But we're doing that in partnership with um, with PSA. We have um, a global coaching program at four levels for those nations that don't have their own coaching infrastructure, and most of them don't. You know, so that that's been really um, really appreciated and, and really critical. We represent the sport in the globing sporting in ecosystem, including the IOC. Um, you know, so there's there's a whole range of things that 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 WSF does as its core role but i think we although we you know i have a strong belief that that um that clubs and venues are, are really the heartbeat of our sport it's very difficult for wsf to reach the n- number of venues across the world we, we 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 couldn't possibly do that 
um, it would be ineffective. So we have to work through our national federations and through our other our continental federations and a range of other stakeholders. So we're enabling more than trying to deliver everything. And I think that's really, you know, I think that's an, an important an important factor. But as I say, we 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 have quite an ambitious strategy and some people have, have criticised us for saying you're too ambitious for the size of organisation you are. But I think we have to be ambitious for our sport and I think we have to take a multi-pronged attack. We have to work with others. Um, we can't do everything ourselves and we shouldn't try to own everything ourselves. I think we are about being catalysts to, to get to, to, to get as many other experts to to work for and with the game um, as possible. Um, so, you know, I could I could I could mention a whole range of things that are in our strategy. But if someone wants to go to the to website, the strategy is there. And I'm very happy for you to read it and give us feedback and come back to us and say, how can we help? Um you know, because I think um, we need as many experts as we possibly can. And if there's digital expertise out there um, or other expertise, um, you know, please come and volunteer because, you know, we we need that help. So I, I, I think we achieved a huge amount last year if we tick off the boxes in terms of what we what we've achieved in the first year of a four year strategy. Um, I think for a small a small team, I think it's it's um, it's it's moving very nicely. But there's still a huge amount to do. Any questions for for Zena or any comments on that? Uh, well, Rob, uh, I'd like to. I know uh, you meant we mentioned earlier. Uh, you're releasing a book, and uh, really excited to see uh, you know the final product there. Uh, if you don't mind, just in um, in three minutes or less, could you give us some of the basic principles for the growth? of squash the way you see it. And, uh, and then we'll get into some uh, questions from uh, from social media. Sure, yeah, the, the, so the following are, these, these are the basic principles of growth. So the focus here is on the flywheel effect. And for those of you unfamiliar with the flywheel, it's ju just visualize an incredibly heavy wheel mounted horizontally, and it takes a great deal of effort to begin rotating it. But if you continue to spin, it gets faster and faster. And, uh, and then it gets to a point where it's very difficult to stop. So now that I've kind of painted this visual, uh, here are the principles for growth. Number one, uh, making recreational play frictionless for young adults 20 to 35 years of age through the democratization of communication. The foundation of growth is not about creating junior funnels. It's about rethinking the ease of recreation. Today's society demands ease. And with each new player we add, we start the flywheel moving. Number two, associated Revenue from recreational play should support a focus on scalable club culture through social communication. Culture will increase the flywheel effect for both new and existing members. Number three, culture through communication will help promote lessons, increasing skill level, and club revenue along with the appreciation for the sport. Now we have 
we're reaching the beginning of a lifelong commitment. This once again speeds up the flywheel effect. Number four, communication over multiple booking systems spanning a wide variety of club categories and the interconnectivity improves networking effects that move the flywheel again faster. Number five, for both public and private clubs, as as they adopt the model and associations will then benefit through increased association membership, junior programs and improved national and provincial squads. This is where increased revenue throughout the industry can be put into advertising. So let's notice that the focus on juniors and advertising is a late stage flywheel effect. Only the fly, only the flywheel is capable of driving more demand than our courts. So only when we really have capped out that, uh, that, you know, on, on our demand for the courts, should we really think about building new courts? These new courts, including outdoor courts, interactive courts, and movable sidewall options will spin the wall, the, that flywheel, incredibly fast. So notice each stage follows kind of a metaphorical version of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, only for squash this time. So it starts with no budget and works its way up to a vibrant community. And, and I wanna kind of review this once, once again quickly. So social communication, between friends and ease of play. Then we've got recreation, recreational club culture. Then an interact, an active club pro. Then modern inter-club communication across multiple booking systems. Then we've got competitive programming and advertising. And then finally, new 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 facilities. So this kind of outlines the importance of what is required at all these different levels, but I can't stress enough about how important that base layer is of getting new people into the clubs and being and giving making it easy for them to play with their friends. I I loved uh, Ed Alvarez's ambassador cards by the way. That's something I've never heard before, but it's something that every club could do really easily. And that could start that flywheel spinning. Yeah, thanks, Rob, for that. Um, everyone, you guys have been so great with your time. I'm just, I've just, uh, I have about four questions from, uh, from social media, if you don't mind. Um, and I think I've got one for everybody, okay? So we're going to kick things off, Peter, with you. And, and I'm not even sure if, if you if this if you'd be able to answer this, but I'm sure you will. Uh, uh, Stuart Vale from um, from Squash World on Facebook. He asks. Uh, he wants. He has. He wants your thoughts on the role of counties and clubs in developing an academy system similar to other sports. Uh, a clear England pathway that doesn't seem to stop at the regional level 
and be dependent on when your birthday is as to whether you qualify for a match in May. Now, I'm not really sure what the, all that is all about, but I figured you might be privy to the uh, the devil in the details there. Uh, okay, I'll do, I'll do my best to give a response there because I'm not... Um... At the moment, I'm not I'm not that close to the junior system and age groups, etc. Um, but I suppose it's going. I mean, just hearing what Rob said, I think that's he probably gave a very good answer there in terms of frictionless. I think, I mean, I, I, and I probably see this a little bit more in tennis actually because um, my son plays tennis, and it's really frustrating when small things like an age group or a birth date stops somebody from a junior from entering a tournament or being able to play an event. Um, so I don't know exactly know the answer to that, but I think just making it as easy as possible for juniors to participate, I think that has to be, you know, that has to be the number one thing. Um, and I mean, in terms of, um, in terms of a, a regional academies and, and county academies, um I mean, my own personal opinion is sometimes too much emphasis is placed on that, um, especially at the kind of the 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 the, 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 the county level and regional level. I mean, I would um, place a lot more emphasis on the club level in terms of a in terms of a structure. Um, so my my dad used to own a squash club actually, um, and he probably has a it's probably a very good case study in some respects for squash in the UK. So his squash club that he had in the early eighties um, and 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 kind of yeah early to mid eighties at one point had fourteen squash courts, um, and then eventually all those squash courts bar two were changed into a hotel. So I've seen the you know see, see, seen the uh, kind of like growth of squash and then I suppose slight demise from courts being taken out. But one thing that he did i thought really well was he had a structure where actually juniors um didn't have to pay for any membership at all um and all junior courts for free were, were for free so in terms of frictionless it was super easy for kids to start playing and start being involved in 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 squads and groups and socializing and actually what that meant was um because that was the case juniors and and kids were encouraged to come down to the, to the club. It meant that parents obviously came down, and it meant that parents spent money at the bar, and and you know also maybe played squash as well. So so actually it was um, you know it wasn't it, it wasn't a purely altruistic um, motive. But I so, so I so I think I think it's starting at the clubs really in terms of in terms of squads, making it very very accessible, and then I would say later on be a bit more concerned about regional programs and county programs thanks peter I don't, know whether, I don't know whether that answered the question particularly but um well that was i was just thinking uh, i had a conversation with a friend of mine uh, we were driving from uh, where i lived uh, near dubai to uh, abu dhabi and he was telling you know in that it's a two hour or an hour and a half drive mm. and he was saying uh, he's from england and uh he was telling me about you know how he just missed uh, playing for Liverpool's uh, Division One team. He was part of the mm-hmm. academy uh, as a junior uh, mm-hmm. on their third division team or fourth division team. He was recruited at very young to play at their academy. So I think uh, is there's there's some sort of um, prestige I guess amongst mm-hmm. younger people, uh, young kids in the UK. 
of being mm-hmm. recruited to these high profile sports and in, into mm-hmm. these academies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you might be aware of that. Uh, I'm not mm-hmm. really. Yeah, I, yeah, really and I think that's obviously that. you know. I think that's a good a good aim, but like you said, for the kids who don't then get into those squads, that can be quite demotivating as well. Yeah, I don't think he uh, plays think, much anymore. Yeah, he, yeah. So it's, <laughs> it, it, it is it is a bit of a double edged sword, I think. Um, having having that aim of getting into a um, you know a county squad or um, or a regional squad. Mm. Okay. Thanks a lot, Peter. Uh, now this one's for for you, uh, Cleve, and uh, it comes from our friend Ross. It's a Garing, Ross Garing from uh, from Squash World, and he's the guy who does the data on all the squash uh, clubs globally. And uh, he wants to know: Does the panel think that the relatively high cost of building a good quality court is a limiting factor? Re growing squash, and if so, what can be done or is being done to address this? So, Cleve, I think you might be poised um well i mean yes it is a factor (laughs) the (laughs) fact that squash courts are expensive is a factor in new york city it's the it's actually the squash courts not the problem it's the commercial real estate you know so we're like we're in midtown our second location is going to be downtown it's among the most expensive commercial real estate in the world and so that's where you get real estate developers making more money off of a condo or you get people who want to put 30 spin cycles in the same 30 by 20 footprint you know and make 20 times as much money um and so yes of course it's a it's a it's a it's a factor um, what I will say, and and I want to limit what I'm saying to what I know about in the United States, and I don't have nearly the experience that, that all of you do um, outside of the United States, um, but uh, in the United States, for various historical reasons, um, people who are squash players as adults are often very well off. And so if you can have a compelling value proposition, they are more than happy to give back to the game and donate to make those courts a reality. Um, and I think in the major markets like New York City and Boston and Philly, you're, you know, that's it's going to be a, it's going to be tough to do a for-profit club in 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 a, in the center of an urban area. I just don't, I'm not sure how the finances would work on that. Maybe they could. I know for a fact you could do it successfully outside of the cities. Um, but uh, but I think that you know, obviously, compared to pickleball, where you can just draw some lines on your driveway, you know, again. Of course, it's going to be different. And of course, there's a bigger investment. But it's, it's you know, we, we, we can't be daunted by the fact that it's, you know, in some respects difficult. It's just a different beast. Squash is a different type of sport. We're a different thing. You've got to put more into it and then you get more out of it. And if we can get if we can, you know, get the more into it started, then, you know, then then it'll pay off. It'll pay off later on. We'll get the return on investment. Um, so, you know, yes, I think it's a problem, but I think it's a problem that can be solved. Thanks, Cleve. Rob, you have your hand up. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think, uh, you know, grow- growing the game as, as it was kind of mentioned in, in the, in the, in the kind of remark that you made, um, is, is you're, you're out, ab- you're absolutely right. You're, 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 what you're doing is when you're growing, you're, you're going to have this asymptoting. A growth curve where you all of a sudden you have this great growth, but it's limited by the amount of courts you have. 
but you have to have you have to go through that with our existing courts. You have to prove that we can grow the game on our existing courts because we've got the investors out there, as Cleve mentioned, but they're only interested in in investing in something that's going to be popular. We have to show that it's going to be popular. So we really have to focus in on making sure that we've asymptoted all of the court uh, growth and we've we've capitalized on on what we currently have. And then we go to those investors saying, look at this is the model that we've proven. Uh, this is the data that we've proven. Now, uh, hey, uh, we would love we would love a few million dollars because we've got some great ideas. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Uh, now uh, everyone might uh, know Jamie Maddox from uh, Facebook Squash Stories. Uh, he has a question for I'm going to pose this one to you, Zena. Uh, it has to do with the the Olympic bid. Uh, he asks, has uh, Squash made? Uh, enough effort this time around to make our case for Olympic inclusion. Tough question to finish it off, uh, Zena, but uh, uh, you've been you've been money all night long here, so I'm not uh, I expect a good a great uh, ending here. <laughs> well, we're we're in the nine, and it's in its public knowledge that we're in the short list of the of the nine of the nine candidates and. You know, there's there's a limit to I, I'm I'm I am constrained in what I can say and what I'm able to say. Um, but I think we've we've made a strong case. I you know, if every every Olympic city when it goes out and and you know and 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 the bid the process has changed over over the last over recent probably the last eight years, it's changed in terms of how sports get in and and what the opportunity is, but we know that there are three sports potentially sitting on the sidelines who could be coming out, which leaves us with an opportunity. You know, we have as good a chance as any. Um, I think um, due to sitting on the cusp on just on the on the outside of Olympic bids, I think it sharpened made sure we sharpened our pencil. We've we've innovated. Um, I think um, the the sport fits the strategy of LA twenty eight really well. But we know there's lots of other factors that come into account, and we don't know what the other bid, what the other sports are putting into their bids. So I think we just have to be patient and wait. But um, I, I do, you know, I, I'd come back to the, the discussion we've had. I, I do think it needs to be a multi-pronged approach to how we um, reinvigorate squash in those areas, in those nations where it it is struggling a bit. It's not struggling in all nations. It is mixed, but. Um, both the, the the bottom down and the top sorry the bottom up and the top down approach is, is is what's going to work and the olympic i do believe that olympic inclusion has to be part of that um and i think squash fits the olympic values as well now as it ever has been as as well as it ever has done so I'm just, just uh... think your Just fingers crossed. You know, if, um, I mean, uh, you know, the bid, as you mentioned, it's LA and uh, college squash these days in, in the US is absolutely, uh, it's taken off over the last 10 years or so. And it's got a, an extremely international flavor to it. Uh, I think I asked one coach who came on, he said he had to speak 11 different languages to communicate uh, with his <laughs> team. Uh, is there some, uh, is there sort of, um, have you, 
use that the the college squash that's going on in the U.S. Uh, the the popularity of it uh, in the Olympic bid at all. Well, bearing in mind that the U.S. perspective is only one part of an overall Olympic bid, and it is and, it, and it's really about the global the global view of the sport. And um, you know, we we we've, we've played to a lot of strengths, I think, of the sport in terms of how we've how how we pulled the bid together and how our, what we put in our presentation. You know, I think we have to look much more broadly than just the USA. Than the USA is a great growth area. Look, you know, the US US women got on the podium for the first time in terms of senior world championship in, in December. And they, they, they pushed Egypt as well. You know, the, there's some, some real strengths there. Um, you know, the West coast isn't the strongest area of squash, but it's growth and it's huge potential, but you know, we need to look further afield like um, India, India is such an important market. And the fact that India is one of our, our, um, our quite significant nations and is growing you know, India's in terms of eyeballs is is critically important. So, you know, there's a there's a there's a there's a big broad perspective that we need to bring um to um an Olympic bid. And um yeah, well, you know, watch this space in the next few months. We won't really know until later in the year, probably mid-October. Um but yep. Yeah, Fingers uh, crossed. Fingers yeah. crossed. Uh Peter, you had your hand up. Actually, I think Zeno just answered my question at the very, at the very end. Yeah, you dropped your hand there, so I was going. Yeah, sorry. No, yeah, Zeno just answered my question. My question was, when do we know, or when do we think we know, we'll know the outcome of the um, of the Olympic bid? And it sounds like it's towards the end of this year. Well, we may, we we may, we may have an idea in terms of LA twenty eight making a decision on 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 any sports that they might want to add to the program. Um, and that won't be permanently add. It will be to add to LA28's program. We should we might know by May or June, but it still has to be then ratified by the IOC, the, the Olympic members, the Olympic session, and that won't be. That's been delayed from from May time um to mid-October. So yeah, we just need to be patient. Absolutely. Uh Many thanks, everybody. I just uh, want, in closing, uh, just some uh, closing remarks from each of you. Just keep it uh, brief if, and uh, 30 seconds or so. Let's start with you, uh, Mr. Eberhardt. Uh, this was a, a wonderful conversation. I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Uh, I, I'd love to see some more uh, growth on, the ver on that uh, very, very bottom uh, rung where we need uh, that bottom-up uh, progress and i love the ambassador cards let's push that forward thanks rob cleave oh yeah i just thanks so much for having me on this and it was great meeting everybody and i want to reach out to everybody after this because i have so many things i wanted to talk about because it's such a compelling topic but um just to put my own spin on closing up on this you know i think it all to me it all comes down to the fact that we just have to have faith in our sport and not get sidetracked. Squash is the most incredible thing I've ever, I've ever done in many respects. Um, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, we just need to, we need to introduce it to people in the right way. If we introduce it to people in the right way, they'll tell other people and it will grow just the way we want it to. You know, there's a blip with that steep learning curve at the very beginning. We just got to get over that and that'll be fine. Um, and I think we do need to think of the bottom up approach as well to complement it. I like what Zena says about she keeps coming back with multi prong approach, multi prong approach. That's spot on. That's the way you do any marketing with multi channels. 
And um, I just, we, we need to be careful as a group. We have a very specific profile in, in squash. And um, we just need to recognize that, you know, I spend literally all day, all night thinking about what my members here need um, and what my members are going to need down in the financial district center. We're opening up and um, Olympic qualification is not on. It's not something I think about. It's just not what my beginners care about or think about. Do we want it? Of course we do. It's going to be fantastic. And I hope we get it sometime, but for day in and day out, it's all about making people feel the magic of what can happen on court as soon as, as soon as we can as, as instructors and as ambassadors to the sport. Thank you, Cleve. Uh, speaking of magic on court, Peter. <laughs> uh, yeah. Magic from maybe 30 years ago. Not quite, not quite now, unfortunately. Um, just I'm partly just to reiterate what Cleve said. I mean, it's, you know, Squash is an unbelievable sport, fantastic sport. Everyone who, who you speak to who's tried out squash loves the game. And if you ever take people to watch live, they also say what a great spectacle it is. So I, I don't think we should forget that. And um, obviously there's things you can we can do in terms of changing the game. Um, you know, like we're talking about earlier in terms of, you know, ball size, making things a bit easier to participate, for people to participate. But, you know, it's a it's a fantastic game we shouldn't you know we shouldn't overlook that um and i suppose you know a plea from me which is obviously what we're doing on this group is is just to share ideas and share good practice and good ways of working and you know you know a lot of people are pulling in the in the right direction for squash um and we just need to keep that kind of going and keep that happening thanks peter and uh, all the best with the independent squash minds it's a really great initiative and a great team you you've assembled there and looking forward to uh What's coming uh, coming up uh, with you guys going forward, uh, Zena? Can you uh, can you close uh, proceedings for us here, please? Yeah, yes, I'll try. Um, yeah, no, um, a great discussion today, and and it's been really positive, I think. And I, I just think that I'll come back just back round to where we started, kind of that. I think squash meets the needs and the challenges of modern lifestyles probably better now than it did in its in its absolute heyday in the seventies. And I think that we we are a small community, and I think there's so much great stuff happening. We're a small community. We have so much passion and expertise. I mean, look at the profile of of, of, of squash players. We have so much expertise there, um, and many different stakeholders and 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 players in the market. Um, and I just think that only by working together and and sharing best practice across those multiple strategies are we going to get to where we need to. And I think. You know, we have a great opportunity ahead of us. Um, somehow we need to pull that all together, need to pull that all together. And and I think a little bit of luck um, across a number of a number of areas, including, I should say, the Olympic bid, because I think it is top down and bottom up only that way. I think by working together and collaboratively, we will get there. But a great Thanks. opportunity. Thank you so much, Zina. I would just want to say uh, thanks to everybody. Thank you for your time uh, today. It was fantastic uh, seeing you all. Uh, you, just some really good uh, good stuff there. And uh, let's try this again uh, someday down the road. Excellent. Thanks, Jerry. Thank you. Thank thanks. you. Thanks, Bye. everybody. Thanks all. Bye-bye. Well, before signing off, I just want to say thanks again to Zena, Rob, Cleve, Ed, and Peter for their time and for sharing their, their thoughts and experiences on growing the game 
And I know already that this discussion has amounted to follow-up discussions and uh, partnerships even uh, going forward. So let's hope that this continues, this type of collaboration, these types of discussions. We see them all the time uh, uh, on the various uh, platforms on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter even. Uh, these discussions are only meant to, to help squash, uh, grow the game, and let's, uh, let's keep up the good fight, everybody. Uh, in terms of the podcast here, we've got uh, Ben Ford. Uh, really good chat with him yesterday. That pod's coming up in a few days, talking about uh, Gina Kennedy, her gold medal per winning performance in the Commonwealth Games, a few of the struggles that she's had recently, and not only that, but Ben's journey both as a pro player and uh, as a coach, and it's a very interesting one. He's got some great thoughts on many aspects of the game, junior squash, the pro game, uh, technical stuff. Uh, it's really good. I know you're going to enjoy it. And also, we've got Charlie Lee coming up next week, uh, one of the young talents coming up, at a, coming uh, through right now, based out of England, the son of Danny Lee, I believe. So really looking forward to having him on as well. And a few surprises uh, fingers crossed they uh, they come to fruition. So stay tuned. We've got some good stuff coming up. It's been fast and furious. Uh, seems to be that time of year here on the pod. I think this is three or four episodes within the last two weeks. Sometimes I go two weeks without an episode, and then uh, other times they just seem to happen one after the other. And that seems to be what it's being what's what's been happening lately. But uh, all the best with your squash. Really appreciate you listening, and uh, talk to you again very soon. Ben Ford coming up in a couple of days. Goodbye now.